Hi, I'm Maeve Marsden and you're listening to Queer Stories. I am so excited about this. I've been sitting on these stories since December 2019, which was when I hosted the now annual Queer Stories Chosen Family Xmas in Sydney. And in 2019, I lent in to the X in Xmas. X, mass, X, mass. Look, it, it makes more sense written out. It was like a coming together to celebrate the beautiful queer tradition that is exes. Yes, yes, relationships are not the be-all and end-all in queerness. Some of us don't do them or haven't had them, don't believe in them or think they're a heteronormative hegemonic scourge. However, as a community, we contain multitudes and the multi I wanted to explore was the very queer tendency to end the romantic part of a relationship but retain the person and the friendship. And so the following episodes are pairs of exes telling the story of their time together or their end or their futures. Strap yourselves in or on for Queer Stories X-Mass. We had Ernest and Laura's story last week and the next pair in this series are Ali and Stevie. Ali Garrett has been writing and speaking on body politics and fat activism for the past decade. She also has a corporate day job working as a CX director in the media intelligence industry. Her activism comes in many forms, most notably posting horny selfies on the internet. Stevie Jack Wilder is a theatre and gender studies graduate now working in the weird and wonderful world of reality TV. He's lived in the UK, Aotearoa and Sydney, performing and writing along the way. His long-term goal is to be a funeral director, but this is thwarted by his fear of driving. He also has a very large cat. Stevie is my favourite ex. Um, and not only is he my favourite ex, he's also my favourite of all of my trans-Aquarian exes. <laughs> uh, so I'm a Scorpio rising and Ellie is a Gemini rising. Um, so I just want some acknowledgement from you all that we kept this hot mess together for seven years. <laughs> Thank you. So why don't you tell them about how we met? All right, so in 2008, I was the golden age of 21, recently dumped by my first love. She went to London on a holiday, cheated on me on the Berlin stopover, and never came back. <laughs> Very Elwood. Um, it had been a rough few months. I thought a uni theatre piece would be just what the doctor ordered. The audition notice read, looking for three women to play one savage and wild barbarian. This was pre-this, um, and for those listening on the podcast, I'm gesturing to my wildly masculine physique. Uh, I walked into the audition room, the scent of sweaty improv dance students lingering in the carpet. In walked Ellie, tits beautifully cradled by a low-neck yellow shirt. I was for a moment staring at the sun, quickly darting my eyes away in fear of blinding. The director's words disappeared into the musky atmosphere, something, something warm up, something, something feminism. <laughs> Ellie was now standing uncomfortably close, hands reached out, leading us in a mirror game. I really struggle with eye contact, um, somewhere on the spectrum and looking into someone's eyes is like looking at you naked. Uh, so these kind of theater games are utter hell for me, especially when your acting partner is giving you the most intense sex sire in recorded human history. <laughs> So our sex eye saw us both cast in the play and for three months we spent 20 hours a week running around a hot, dark theatre in corsets, biting into apples until juice ran down our necks. 
as you can imagine, the sexual tension finally concluded on a Halloween, which became a fucker's mystery romance. (laughs) (laughs) And when I have a crush on someone, I I lose all rational thought. And that's how I found myself moving into Stevie's eight-person share house after five months. The house uh, was affectionately known as the Boston, sitting on Boston Terrace, Arrow Valley, a suburb surrounded by beautiful native trees and bush. It once cradled the flowing Waimapihi River. The Boston was first built in the 1890s, and I'm pretty sure it hasn't seen a tradie since. And I'm not what you would call a low-maintenance person. So it was kind of a big deal for me to move into a house where the shower was in the garden. (laughs) And if you left any food on the bench overnight, it'd be eaten by the rats. Oh, but he did prefer organic produce. He did. (laughs) One Easter, the the, the rat actually chose a fair trade chocolate bar over a Cadbury bunny. (laughs) And then one winter, winter, ratty died. No, no. <laughs> he died in the walls. Um, look, I, um, I actually just can't really go into that time of my life. Um, those two months of rat decomp were maybe more traumatising than all of my breakups put together and my uh, father's sudden death. So, yeah, I'm not joking there. Yeah. <laughs> There was only so much organic produce that you can actually feed a ginormous rat on our student budget. (laughs) So it was time for us to move into an apartment together. And moving into that apartment, it was just one of the many queer rites of passage in our first grown-up relationship. I failed a university paper because I discovered queer sex and I just just wanted to get fisted instead of reading Chaucer. We bought our first couch together. Mm, And uh, we bought our first Hitachi Magic Wand together. (laughs) (laughs) We adopted two cats, temporarily borrowed a neighbour's cat and gave another homeless cat palliative care. We moved countries together. We tried out BDSM together. And a few hours later, we had our first visit to A&E together. Because we're dislocated my jaw. Together. Together. (laughs) Very cute. We walked in the footsteps of so many queer couples who've gone before us. And we bought a copy of The Ethical Slut. (laughs) And then a copy of Codependent No More. We got our first office jobs. Same place, different teams, same glorified data entry. (laughs) Therefore, there was plenty of opportunity to flirt via work email. And it was all fun and games. Until it wasn't. It was a Thursday morning. Ellie walked past my desk to get to the kitchen. She looked cute. I looked hot. (laughs) Stevie replied to the email I just sent him. When you walked past me to get your breakfast, I thought about writing your face. 
Except Stevie didn't send that to me. I replied to our extremely introverted colleague, Michael Ganaway. Michael replied, Hi, Stevie. I think you might have sent that to the wrong person. From Michael. For approximately a week. So Ellie and I started off in a pretty silly and chemistry-packed relationship. We basically grew into adulthood together. I got to experience a different type of family dynamic, the trio of Ellie, her sisters and mum, Christmases watching Love Actually, being gifted hand-knitted socks from her grandma. Ellie was with me through my transition journey, a very emotionally fraught and tiring journey. She and my mum teamed up to care for me after my chest surgery and another family dynamic was formed. The problem with your first grown-up relationship is that you lack some of the grown-up skills to navigate what you should do when that relationship isn't working anymore. We navigated through a gender transition, moving countries and mental health difficulties, but neither of us grew up in houses where we could see what conflict resolution looked like. And shockingly, just because the ethical slut was on our bookshelf, it, it, it didn't make non-monogamy any easier. One day, Ali came home from work, and an hour or two later, she left with a suitcase. I was suddenly single, and boy, did I not see that coming. It was simple. It wasn't working for her anymore. It was a stomach-drops-to-your-shoes kind of shock, the one where you aren't sure whether you're going to throw up or pass out. The conversation was brief, painful, but kind. I was about to face a year of utterly depressing heartbreak, but it was for someone I loved. And that made things simple. What joy can be had from holding someone in hostage in a relationship? The following years were rocky. We had many hard but important conversations, often timed perfectly after brunch on the way home. We'd have a great soy latte, some fruity sodas, seasonal herbs floating in it, some eggs, talk about fuck knows what, and then we'd walk home together. Five minutes before we parted ways, one of us would say something and the other would burst into tears. Routine part two, find an uncomfortable garden hedge, talk about our feelings for two and a half times longer than we were in the cafe for. <laughs> Routine part three, have at least two nonnas coming home from church, very distressed at why Ali was making me, the boy, cry. <laughs> and a side note, I used to cry all the time in fun. <laughs> Instead of dealing with any of those feelings, I leapt straight into another relationship. Let's call my new boyfriend Simon. It was a relationship that was much easier to be in if I made myself smaller. It was easier if I just didn't see my friends because it agitated Simon when I was social. It was easier if I paid his rent sometimes. It was easier if I ate less and went to yoga because he'd say things like, now that you've lost a little bit of weight, it's easier to find your pussy. I saw Ellie struggling, but I wasn't that person anymore to provide comfort and to be an ear, a shoulder to lie on, a chest to cry on. Just be, just be together in a sad moment. That flow back and forth of support for seven years was gone and I watched from the sidelines with Ellie sinking into a world of vulnerability and self-deprecation. I became really isolated. I walked past a pub every day and I had to look down when I passed the tables of people laughing and drinking beers. It, it hurt too much to see people with their friends. It's very embarrassing being in a bad relationship. 
I was desperate for it to live up to the potential that it had in my head, especially because I'd fucked up my relationship with Stevie so badly. Two years on from our breakup, like a light bulb, I woke up one morning realising that maybe dating could be a nice thing. In a typical queer way, Amelia and I met through the fact that we were seeing the same person in different capacities. <laughs> and I was very aware from very early on that Amelia and I were going to be together for quite a while. We jumped headfirst into this new relationship and I was lit up with that joy of discovering a new love. I harbored a deep fear though. I knew I still loved Ellie, but I didn't know in what capacity anymore. I couldn't consolidate holding love for both people without feeling a sense of betrayal. And I eventually shared this with Amelia. Ellie had been a huge part of my life, my growth, my transition, my moving to Australia. I was always going to love her. I still wanted her in my life, even though I didn't know what that practically meant anymore. The two of us were still at our crying at the street stage. That night, Amelia put her hands on mine and said, my love, you have a lot of love to give. I'm not threatened. I love you both still want to make this work somehow. If Ellie's important to you, then Ellie's important to me. There were some sacrifices that I wasn't willing to make. I bought a ticket to Bad Dog because I wanted to be the kind of person who went to queer parties with their friends. Simon said to me that if I went to the party, he'd leave me. I went to the party. <laughs> Stevie was at the party, and so was Stevie's newish girlfriend, Amelia. It was Amelia who pulled a special cap out of her pocket <laughs> for me to wear. <laughs> a couple of days later, it was Amelia who invited me to regular Sunday beers at the pub with her friends. Suddenly, I had friends to go to the pub with. Not only was Stevie back in my life, but I'd gained an Amelia. Amelia helped me to rebuild my life alongside a handful of other friends that I'm so grateful I held on to. And I'm so grateful that Stevie chose to have me in his life for a second time. And I'm grateful that Stevie and Amelia have chosen me as their family. I grew up in the UK where my matriarchal line is pretty splintered. It's wrought with generations of poverty and fractured relationships. I also grew up in Te Whanganui Atara Aotearoa, Wellington, New Zealand. I was nurtured here by the people and land with open arms. I learned new ways to form connection and love. I was welcomed onto Marae as a young, gender-confused Pākehā and began to unlearn my fraught British family dynamics. And then I came here. I found queer communities. I found my obscure and wonderful gender identity. There's a word in Te Reo Māori I want to share with you tonight, and it's whanongatanga. Uh, whanongatanga is about kinship and duty to anyone who you develop reciprocal familial relationships with. When you have whanongatanga, you can rely on people and they can rely on you. When you have whanongatanga, the collective is stronger and the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. And that's what I think we have here, Ellie and I, but also all of you. It's what we cultivate in the room tonight and in all the small pockets of communities across the inner west and the Blue Mountains and further afar. We're here together as family, 
as whānau, with a duty to one, an one another to make the collective stronger. And we may be exes, but we're still family. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to the podcast, rate and review it, and follow Queer Stories on Facebook for updates. Follow me, Maeve Marsden, on Twitter and Instagram, and please consider ordering a copy of the Queer Stories book, a collection of the tales that I edited with beautiful stories by incredible writers such as Nayuka Gori, Benjamin Law, Candy Bowers, Candy Royale, Simon Hunt, Liz Duck Chong, and Rebecca Shaw. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.